You're listening to Work Tape, Episode 7. I am Mitchell Palmer, one of your hosts, right next to me. Isaac Grover. Yes, uh, Brains of the Operation. So we're trying out something a little bit different here this afternoon. Uh, We're going live on TikTok while also recording into our MacBook over there. Uh, So we're giving this a shot, giving some more audience interaction for those who are tuning in. We really got a special one for you guys here today. So without really too much further ado, I'm just going to get into it unless you got anything you want to say. The lovely people who are watching. Honestly, right now, I, I don't really have anything. All right. We'll go ahead and get ourselves started here. So, of course, with this being the Work Tape podcast and having music as the focus, uh, one of the most important aspects of music, especially in this day and age with all this technological advancement that's occurring, is the sound of the music. And oftentimes you'll have a great album that will also sound good on a technical side of things, whether they be using newest breakthroughs in instruments or virtual emulations, or they go old school and record a tape just like they did back in the day. So you're Um, speaking sonic qualities. Right. And I think that the sonic quality of an album, in my opinion anyway, as someone who loves music and has pretty much had headphones on since I was a small child, The engineering and the sound quality of the album is very important and I think will boost a already great album. Now, that's not to say that there aren't great albums that have come out with less than ideal recording situations, because there's definitely plenty of those. But I do think that the actual auditory quality is going to entice people to listen to it. And overall, it's going to get more plays because it just sounds technically better. And what's interesting is I feel like I haven't seen nearly as much of that recently. I feel like the general trends of mixing and mastering is they have to have the bass that's going to rattle your speakers and whatnot. But doesn't distort in quality. Right. And that's kind of the benchmark is like, how much bass do you have packing? Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think there were a few albums that came out recently that actually sounded pretty good from a sonic standpoint. I would say The Weeknd's last album sounded very good with it being a throwback to the 80s. I Would also, you say in the same vein as like Daft Punk, the yeah, sonics of their albums? Right, especially Random Access Memories, which was the last one that Daft Punk made, unfortunately, before they broke up, before they decided to call it quits, which was a bit of a shame just because I would have loved to have seen them live at least once before they decided to call it quits. But I do understand that at that point in their career, they didn't really have a whole lot to prove. They were producing for some tracks here and there. Um, but kind of left a wide and very dense discography behind them. They're a great example of sampling done really, really well, I would say, which was something that we discussed on a previous episode. But yeah, that Random Access Memories album was one of the best engineered ones that I heard. Um, Of course, Mike Jackson's Thriller, Prince with Purple Rain, just to name a few. But I think that it is definitely important because... It kind of adds to the overall statement of the record, especially if you are going for something that is generally a little bit more slick and a little bit more intricate with its layers. You really want people to to feel those textures in there. So I think that like, you know, the engineering thing is, is huge and especially with Apple pushing this spatial audio. Yeah. What are your sentiments on that? Do you think that's going to be like fat or? Well, what I think about the spatial audio thing is like any technology in the music space, The people who first use it, it doesn't really get appreciated when the people who are first using it. Now, I know that they've used the spatial audio treatment on some tracks by the weekend. Of course, some classic songs they've updated or restored into a spatial audio. I think Bohemian Rhapsody, they had to. Right. But I think the artists that are going to come out that are really going to start to utilize that, I don't think it's going to be given as much flowers as maybe they would expect. But I think that that's just kind of something that is consistent with technology in recording in general. I mean, even with instances where people were using vocoders, which later became auto-tune, the early pioneers of those sounds, while they were making landmark records, didn't really get the love and respect that they really deserved until much later on because it was brand new technology that people hadn't heard before. And some people thought that it was sacrificing the integrity of the music or whatever you might want to call it, especially with autotune. A lot of people thought that, oh, you're just using it as a crutch. 
and people don't have to sing anymore. They can just be pitch corrected. When in reality, that wasn't really the whole side of the story, maybe in the beginning. But of course, artists such as Kanye were able to use the auto-tune and Travis Scott even as more of a instrument and more of a tool to emote different expressions through auto-tune. So the same thing with spatial audio is that the people who get on it really early in the beginning, I think it will be seen as a novelty fad, but I think depending on how well they're able to execute it, I think it could be something that you'll see from this point forward, especially with the bigger mainstream artists that have a lot of backing already from the studio, kind of the equivalent of a blockbuster album. I think that's where you're going to see it. I think the independent thing, it's not really going to be much of a thing with independent artists, especially just because their music is made on not really a whole lot in terms of budget. So unless there was some way of making that sound accessible to the general public, which could happen, like the cases with these breakthroughs, I think it's going to be reserved for like those bigger budget grand albums. I don't think it's going to be something where you're going to see like, a rising artist recording music out their garage with spatial audio unless it be- <laughs> unless it becomes accessible actually it's spatial audio but not in the dolby atmos it's spatial because you can right. hear all the reverberations and the untreatment of the room so that's kind of my stance on it as somebody who is a little bit of a nerd in that respect and you're pretty active in the studio too Yeah, I'm very excited to see how they'll incorporate it in terms of consumption of music. I don't know if it's going to necessarily change so much in terms of the production. I think it'll aid in the production, Mm -hmm. but I think it's really going to change how you consume it, especially if they start incorporating or they start making headphones and ways to listen to music that have the spatial audio built in, like how in the 80s you didn't have stereo or, you know, surround until the mid 80s. So I think new technology, which is basically what you're implying, is more like a tool. So people can use it in a gimmicky fashion or they could use it with a really cool purpose in mind and a really cool end result. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like that's the thing. I think people have to kind of realize just because you have all the gear and the tech doesn't mean that the music is good. Mm-hmm. It really there are a lot of people who need to hear that. Sorry. <laughs> no, of course, because people think that to get into making music, you have to have a studio setup that costs upwards of like two grand plus or more. When the reality of the day is that you don't necessarily have to. And in fact, you know, with more widely available means in terms of making music, I've seen a lot of people make some pretty interesting stuff on the equivalent of no budget. Now, granted, I think that in some respects, you do need to have a little bit of a baseline because I think if you cheap out too much, then it's not really going to pass the ear test. The best thing to do is to really focus on the areas of attack that you can get the best Mm -hmm. and then focus on what you can do for your studio setup, whatever that is, whether you're in a bedroom or in a big studio. Mm -hmm. Overhead's kind of bad though. So, you know, you're, you're losing a lot if you're not, mm-hmm. you know, spend, it's, it's a lot with right. a bigger studio. But for most people who are self-produced, yeah, you don't need that much. Kind of like what you're saying, I would invest a little bit, as much as you can in a minimal fashion. Right. But don't go overboard, but don't do nothing. Right. I think the happiest medium for most people is somewhere in between the low medium range. Yeah, absolutely. Because you kind of get what you pay for. Like low, yeah, low budget, yeah. but it's medium quality. Yeah, you get what you pay for in that sense, but it's not, you don't need to go out and buy like a $3,000 Neumann to get started. That's what I'm trying to tell people. I'm trying to no. tell people like, you don't need. You can get like a $100 used interface. Yeah. Which is, honestly, I remember when that was kind of expensive. And I, and I still actually feel, especially kind of with what's been going on with 2020 and, you know, here we are in 2021, we're still kind of recovering overall. Yeah. I think a hundred bucks can still be a bit steep, assuming that you're going to get microphones, other instruments, but really you just cannot go wrong with buying used. Yeah, absolutely. I would just start there. Absolutely. Because I think, especially with sites like Reverb, you can find some really, really cool stuff. I know. At discounted rates. I'm talking like historical type things. <laughs> like, no, I swear there was a posting on there for the mixing console yeah. that Sly and the Family Stone used on like a few different albums. Now I think it what? was- Yes, the, I swear. How big was this console? It was about, so you see your Arturia keyboard over there. It was probably about half, maybe three quarters of that. It wasn't anything too big. So it's not that wide, about as half of an 88 key keyboard. Right, but I mean, you can find some really, really interesting things. So anybody who's listening who wants- How much to- were they listing that for? Oh, I think it was less than 10 grand, man. 
Okay, no, so still steep, but for someone who is running a studio. Yeah, and who wants a piece of history, like, right. yeah. I mean, you could say, like, yeah, that was the board that they used. Yeah, I was going to say, that guy's not going to sell that cheap. But, oh, no. but, I, but I get what you're saying. You do find some super sick stuff on there. Absolutely. So I think that's one of the biggest resources that people can use. And it's so interesting because I think even the way some of the, the music that's really lasted that has been out for decades doesn't necessarily sound like it was produced or engineered in that decade. Because there's songs from 70s, 80s, and a little bit of the 60s, but really the 70s and 80s, that I'm like, they could have recorded that yesterday. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. then on the other side of that spectrum, you have music from like the early to mid 2000s, where they had the whole loudness wars thing, where it was a competition of, oh, their album's loud? Well, let's take it louder. And that music sounds really dated even now. That's the thing. Like U2 even, some of the mid-2000s U2's albums, good as they were, they were almost a little ruined by like the loudness war thing where they had to feel like they had, yeah. they had to push it so high. You know, Beautiful Day, as far as the single goes, it felt kind of underproduced to me. Well, I mean, that was like, that was off of, you know, all the things you can't leave behind, like right. But at, that was in 2000, right? Yeah, 2000 on the dot. Like that was 2000, turn of talk, the new millennium. You're talking the, about the a little bit into the aughts, not, not yeah, just, the okay, loudness, okay. The loudness war is what really established. Because, because that song was very underproduced, but then like you listen to Atomic Bomb and it's pretty like beefy. Yeah. But I think the thing is, is like sometimes with some of those albums, it's just not clear. Like it's so compressed and then also mm -hmm. just pushed up to where there's not really a lot in the way of like dynamic range. And I think that's the thing that gets me about some of that music is that, oh, it can have good structure. Oh, it sounds good. Right. Or I mean, you know, oh, the like but the dynamics are destroyed. Exactly. So when you go listen to your car, you're like, ooh, ow, I don't want to listen to that. Yeah, no, that happens, dude. That happens. I, I remember listening to some like 70s records, the early ones or the late 60s. And, you know, they used what they had at the time. But yeah, especially like those old school, like reggae roots records from the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Those are rough. Yeah. I mean, the compositions are great. They yeah. you cannot debate it. They are so good. Oh, of course. The mixes are harsh. Right. And the musicianship was, are we talking like Trojan records? Yeah. Yeah, right. But that lo-fi vibe is actually really cool and it really gave, It's endearing in a way. It gave into the dub sound. It's an amazing experience because of them maxing out the bass. Mm -hmm. But not even just like the lo-fi sound, but even like a rougher lo-fi sound. It's very dynamic to the point that it sounds very off balance. Yeah. But there's something that is part of that extreme lo-fi sound that makes dub what it was. And it wouldn't actually sound... Mm -hmm. as good if it was mixed well right it's probably the only genre i could think of that did that very well well you kind of brought up a good point which is the whole idea of manipulating it in the sense because that's what they essentially did is manipulating these frequencies right. to the most extreme it reminds me of a little movement that was happening in houston texas around the 80s and the 90s have you heard of the phrase chopping and screwing a track yes I might have heard it from you, but I feel like I've heard it. Actually, no, 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 no. No, I do know it. Chop Dude, it's because you know why? It's because they messed with my head with the slowed and reverb. Right. They messed. I was like, well, oh, it's slowed and reverb. It's like, no, it's not. It's chopped and screwed. screwed. Yep. All right. Because that's the thing. Somebody said that slowed and reverb is the white version of chopped and screwed, which um, <laughs> as a white person, I mean, I can see where they're coming from with that. Especially because, you know, all these people in our generation are like getting onto that side of YouTube where they take all these popular songs that you know, and some of them are like even forgotten gems and will slow and reverb it to give it that. The pioneers are almost always forgotten. Right. But no, DJ Screw was the guy who was doing that and he was doing it with actual records. And it was a big thing in Houston where it mm -hmm. was like on CDs and then it just branched out from there. And of course, it was synonymous with a lot of partying at that time. Right. You know, drinking lean or whatever, who might already be kind of in a different state. When they hear that music, it elevates it much further. But I don't know. I think that some of that chopped and screwed lo-fi sound is still persistent in a lot of music that's being made. It's very persistent. And especially in the independent, like underground oh, scene. Oh, totally. But this is a good segue because I kind of want it. Now, now it's opinion time. All right, let's do it. I want to know what you feel about the slow down effect. I think it's cool that it has a history. And I think a yeah. lot of these DJs, you know, they knew what they were doing. And I think for the purpose of that genre, whatever you do in that genre is appropriate. 
Right. Whether someone likes it or not. Mm-hmm. But how do you personally feel about the idea of slowing down a track or speeding up a track? But let's just talk about slowing down a track. What does that do for you? Does that really excite you or do you just want to listen to the normal track? I'll tell you, it's a very case by case thing. That's true. What about ratio? More often than not or more often, yes. More often, yes. But I think that's just because the people who are posting these remixes on are YouTube. Good at it, is just, what saying? Yeah, they have good taste. They know okay, this song would actually sound really good slowed down. So you have heard a lot of terrible execution. Oh, yes. Yeah, because I feel like it's a bit saturated with a lot of bad execution. Yeah, definitely, because they're trying to play into the trend of this whole lo-fi thing. And I think that just slowing it down and doing that makes it sound better, when in my opinion, I think that a lot of times these DJs aren't really DJs. Right. The audio still has to be clean, though, too. So the the way that you even process, you have to process it correctly, because if you do it right, it'll almost sound like it meant to sound like that. Like, if you do it perfectly, you're like, oh, I'm not going to listen to this any other way because that's how they intended it to sound in the first place. Mm -hmm. If you do it incorrectly and it's all crackly and it's distorting and the overall quality of it takes a massive nosedive, Mm -hmm. then I can't get with that. And people trying to be, you know, novelty and cute a little (laughs) bit about it, saying, you know, oh, look what I did. I slowed and reverbed this Kanye track. Okay, that's great. But if you can't hear a lot of Ye's production, then it doesn't make a lot of sense. But you take... Ah, so you mentioned about the whole adult stream trend on TikTok. Yeah, that's... We were talking about that. Because that's one of the biggest trends on TikTok right right now. Personally, I love it. So Vano 3000, you liked what he did? Yeah, of course. What's your take on what Vano did with that track? From a sampling standpoint or just an audio standpoint? Yeah, like what do you think? Like, how do you feel about it? Like when you listen to it, obviously it might have sounded cool. And I thought it sounded cool. But what did you think about what he put in to do that? Well, I think, didn't he collaborate with Bad, Bad, Not Good, which is the jazz band, I think, on that track? I'm assuming he got permission. I don't really know for a fact, yeah. but I'm assuming that he got permission from them in the first place to do that. Yeah, so I think- it got pretty popular on so, TikTok. And still is. It's still- Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it is it's, pretty it big. It still is. I think the thing is, is, yeah, that's very much an idea of sampling and or remorphing a track to give it a different flavor. Especially because with that one, it's really interesting because you have the chipmunk soul thing that Kanye got known for and that pretty much every other producer bit off of Kanye. I am the only one that hates that trend. You don't like the chipmunk the, soul? Oh, I hate it. But I mean, so so you have the chip, but I mean, but, there, but there's a lot of people who are, <laughs> but there's a lot of people who are for the chipmunk soul. Dude, that's why I said I'm the only one that hates it because everyone I know loves it. I mean, Coldplay jumped on it with Charlie Brown. That's very true. That's a very specific thing. And I feel like enough people know exactly what I'm talking about. And yes. That was in 2011. I remember when right. it was really on the up and up in the late aughts. And then 2010s hit, Chipmunk Trend everywhere. And where, which album was that on for Kanye? Oh, uh, Chipmunk Soul was, that's like college dropout. Like everything right before 808s. He did the whole chipmunk soul thing. Was Dropout the one with the bear? Yes. Oh, that was 04 or 05? Yeah, it's like 04. But I think the whole idea of like the chipmunk soul thing that will appeal to a lot of people. And then just the way that jazzy instrumental just really fits a more slowed down, manipulated approach. Like I think the cleanliness of the recording has to be there, but also like just the sonic structure has to be there in order for it to really be effective. Because a song like Phil Collins and the Air Tonight, Chopped and Screwed, it hits harder. It hits different. And it's kind of like that nighttime thing where you might either be cruising or you might just be in your feelings or whatever. But I think with the whole idea of the manipulation of the audio, it can make a lot of tracks hit harder and hit differently than how they originally anticipated. There is a remix of Jadena's Classic Man, which is like the male equivalent of Fancy. In fact, I think he actually had to pay some songwriting credits to Iggy yeah, over that. Rightly so. Right. But they had a version of that that was chopped and screwed and it became a completely different song. Like it kind of it had a- What com- did he do to it? He just, did he- It was slowed down. Okay, so he slowed it, it down. slowed down. It had the reverse. So that, let's do a little crash course for those who are uninitiated as to what a chopped and screwed song is supposed to contain. So, let's get it. So the first thing is you have to have the actual song itself. And most of the time, a lot of people will get acapellas or stem tracks to remix as well. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes it's- slow down by a considerable margin, like usually half time of the original or a little more. And then of course, warping on the vocals, that sound on the vocals where you would see television shows where people remain anonymous and they warp their voice to sound really deep, almost indistinguishable. 
And then just some manipulation of the track repeating sections to make it stand out a little bit more. That's the chopped and screwed checklist for the most part. So that was one of the things where I was like, wow, this completely changed the whole vibe of the track. It did a complete 180 because beforehand it was the male fancy. It was a club banger that was meant to be played around at parties, but this hit different. And I think that's the thing with tech as a whole is the subjectivity of what is considered good sound will like vary in person to person. But well, back on the Vano thing, because some people listening to it, even though I thought it was really cool, a lot of things that I've read about it and I just want your take, you know, this isn't like sure. fact or fiction, just, you know, right. it's, we, it's just we, people's opinions, right? Yeah. Even if it's true or false. But on that topic, how do you feel about people who say that he just sped it up and that's pretty much all he did? I can see the argument there that people will oftentimes throw at people who rely on sampling a lot for their production style, whether they're in the genre of hip hop or not. Okay, so someone makes the argument that sampling, at least you are chopping it up and you're placing in different places or maybe recording at least a drum track to it on top of the pieces of sampling and putting them in different orders. Yeah. But someone makes an argument, but this dude just sped it up or just slowed it down. And that was like kind of it, right? Yeah, like that's at least their argument. And it was repurposed, you know? Yes. Well, in that way. I think it's cool that he did it, but I think I hear what people are saying with that. Yeah, I I do too. But think about the fact that Tom York put out a very slowed down version of Creep. Oh, you know, it's funny. I haven't even listened to it. The 2021 version. He spoiled it for me, which is fine. I just, I haven't listened to it. So I'm hearing this for the first time. So what happened with that? He basically just slowed the track down. It's Creep, but it's just slowed way down jumping on the trend yes he is this is a trend that's right so so that's what tom york did because as anybody who is into radiohead knows radiohead themselves hate creep with a burning that makes so much sense so they just like hey uh here you go you know i don't really like this track anyway so why not just yeah they they hate (laughs) they they hate creep with a burning passion mostly just because it became their go-to song right and they probably had to play it live so many times that they're like ugh. I don't want to play this anymore. And then, of course, with the way that they evolved as a band. I think it's one of the most boring songs. Yeah. Structurally, it. yeah. I think it's kind of. I think a, it's good. No, it is. Actually, I think it's a well-written song. The chord progressions work. It's very reminiscent of its time, though. I think it. True. Because, true. Yeah, that's true. And, and I can say that for the entirety of Pablo Honey, I, not even just for uh-huh. that song, but the entirety of Pablo Honey does feel like grunge leftovers a little bit because it does have that sound to the guitars. I think the vocals were probably a little bit crisper on the Radiohead records than some of those grunge records with like the exception of like Nevermind right. or the Pearl Jam and album. Utero is pretty uh, rough as well. Yeah, but I think Nirvana was kind of doing that on purpose. Yeah. I think Kurt and the company were very much like, let's make an aggressive album. Kurt was like, do you guys like just let me do what I want to do kind of attitude? Right. So no, no, I mean, the thing is, is Pablo Honey, like I said, and Creep just felt like a grunge leftover. Like it didn't quite make it in the prime of when that genre was going, but people still had enough admiration for it. It kind of goes to show how much of an anomaly that Radiohead are. The fact that I bet that didn't take that much effort. That's why oh, no. I feel like it didn't take that much effort. And yet they still cemented themselves. They put themselves single. on the chart. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they got they got into charts for that. I feel like it's like that guy that writes a song and they're like, well, I know like it might catch on, but I don't really like it. But let's put it out. And I feel like that's what creep is. No, absolutely. And I think it gave them a really good platform to become the band that we know them right. for today. But then after doing that, they like, okay, screw everyone. We're going to do what we want. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, and then the Benz is still pretty radio friendly, but you could tell that Radiohead were morphing into we want to do what we want to do. Yeah. I mean, the, the Benz is very much still like a guitar focused record. Like it it's has, still pretty radio friendly compared to some of their other stuff. Y- yeah. It's definitely got more of like that. It's like Oasis, but better. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> it's just, it's personal preference, right? <laughs> Oasis is perfect when you want to like sing along. Radiohead's oh, great yeah. if you just want to like feel. And I like, mean, there's a reason why Oasis was one of the biggest bands in Britain. Yes, there's a reason. For a while. I mean, whether or not they were the next Beatles, I was like, no. Ew. Some people said well, that. I know, I know, but those people need to just stop being was, people. Yeah, especially after um, Morning Glory came out. They're like, oh, they're the next Beatles. And then... No, just appreciate the band for who they... I'm not big on them, but I hate when they have to always... Pair it to somebody else. Yeah, and when people say, oh, GVF are the next Led Zeppelin, it's like, we don't want that no only people who are your dad want that we don't want that 
And I was like, maybe your grandpa too. Your, yeah, your, I was just about to say, maybe, maybe your maybe grandpa, your grandpa but not, too. Not me. I don't want. So GVF I mean, in a way, I mean, GVF's always going to have a fan base yeah. to a certain extent because of that. Uh, even if <laughs> even if they don't reach us, they're going to reach them, and those people have money, so they're right. going to you know buy the tickets to the shows. But yeah, no, Tom York actually jumped on that trend with a very twenty twenty one remix of Creep, which basically the internet as well as fans took as him saying. I really, really hate this song. I'm going to show everybody how much I hate this song. That's amazing. By slowing it way down and making it almost unbearable to listen to. Like, it's... I think Tom's a total troll. And I, that's absolutely why I Tom's love him. a troll. Like, no he's, question. He's really a fantastic individual for no, just... No question. Because, I mean, he always seems to, like, throw his fan base for a loop. <laughs> like, you think, like, they're going to do something... And then Tom comes out and does like this experimental album or mini album with a visual film. Like he had some on Netflix. But you know how they say you attract a particular type of person? Yeah. And so you get what you put out. Right. And what's super sick about Radiohead versus a lot of other bands is I feel like a lot of bands will pander to their mm -hmm. audience. And I think it's good to serve your audience, but to what extent, right? Yeah. Radiohead's like, okay, no, 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 no. We're going to do what we like to do. And if you can dig it, yeah, you'll stick around. If not, right. then there's the road. Yeah, right. And so that's why Radiohead are able to do what they do. Yeah. It's not like a lot of bands where they go completely in a direction of pop or something and then they stay there. Right. And they don't even like, you know, try to revisit any of the old things well, they no did. No one's going to respect you as a fan if you are always pandering to what they want you to do. Yeah. Because then you don't, have now, an yeah. you don't have an identity as an artist. So it's like... Mm -hmm. Once again, another big reason why rock needs a changing of the guard Ugh. in a large respect. Rock artists need to stop trying to like directly copy artists 30 years ago and oh, more. Oh, wait, but not even 30 years ago, bro. Try 10, 15, especially with that. You're um, right. You're especially right. with the, the good for you, Olivia Rodrigo track. That's been hitting up the billboard. You're right. Like, nope, you're right. You're like, right. I mean, I have to give Olivia. I still have an issue with the 30 years, though. The 30s yeah. and the 20s because it's rampant. Oh, yeah. Let's sound like Blink and Paramore and call it good. Like, no. How about do something different? Right. And that's the thing. I mean, I have to give Olivia respect because she has so many songs that are in the Hot 100. And to have that many songs out the gate in the Hot 100. I mean, being the less popular ones are good. Yeah, they are. Good For You is actually not a bad song. I think no, it's, it's not. I, I think it's actually a really good song, so I'm not hating on that. No, absolutely not. But it's indicative of her generation of artists that think that it's yeah. like MGK, like, oh, yeah, let's totally. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's not bad. It's different. And I think that people who are older need to get used to something new. Like, it is what it is. This is Gen Z's time to have something to define them. Right. But I think it's really corny and cheesy when your definition is just a direct ripoff of something that your parents listen to. But the thing is- Or your older brother or older sister. It's very funny that you bring up MGK, especially with his last album, because I feel like that is the thing. Olivia Rodrigo, I feel like the execution and the songwriting mm -hmm. is there to where, even though it is a complete and utter callback to that- pop punk era of the early to mid 2000s so that's all but, it is but i can get behind it because okay olivia has good songwriting she has a really good voice too like it's not like she doesn't have the chops to sing like she does mgk i never doesn't really have any of that oh no no okay yeah 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 <laughs> even though i actually really like i like a lot of crappy singers and a lot of the crappiest singers it's true talking heads david byrne the dude doesn't have pitch but it's good you can't diss on Talking Heads. And David Byrne, Love is, David Byrne, he's a creative genius. There's a reason why he's there. Yeah. A lot of my favorite artists are like that. But when you take someone like MGK, I bet that he doesn't have a bad voice. No. But the problem is he's just drenching it in all these effects. Yeah. And it just sounds kind of cheesy. I don't I can't even do it. I just did like a british <laughs> knockoff accent. But <laughs> I can't even do it. I, I wish I could channel my... <laughs> inner blink right but uh but in a bad way no but that that is basically what what mgk was doing and um yeah i, I think it's just in terms of the actual songwriting and whatnot i'm just like just can't i just can't. it sounds forced and not natural right and 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 that's there is a place for quote-unquote bad singing blink did it but there's Boy. something the way blink and lit and all these bands did it that even though it's corny and tacky there's something that we love about it yeah because well part of it's nostalgia part of it's just the fact that that's we grew, true we grew up on it i but, know near but, dear to my heart some 41 but also i think it's the actual approach and attitude of the bands to where they came out and they weren't trying to market it as like high art like they knew 
they knew that the singing wasn't up to par, maybe with some of the other artists at the up time. Up to par. Right. They, they, that was a lot better. Um, that was much better. That was a lot better. <laughs> but, but they knew. And I think to a certain extent, I have to give a certain amount of credit with music and films both, even if they're not as good as something else. If they know that they're not as good and they like almost embrace it, I have to give them. I do it all the time. I, I mean, have, you have to, a way better voice than I do. All I do is I just focus on my melodies. I don't focus on things that I'm not amazing at and then try to like fake right. it. There's right. no need to fake it. Right. But it, like I said, if you embrace the fact that the audio quality might not sound as good because it's lo-fi on mm-hmm. budget gear. If you embrace the fact that, you know, you might not be the greatest singer in the world. If you embrace those things and you kind of wear it with pride, I think that gets a lot of points in my book because mm-hmm. you are doing it a hundred percent knowing all of those things and you're not trying to market it as something else and you're not coming with a state of mind that like you know you're above everything it's the people that do those things and then have the attitude of almost pretension like they're above something or like they're going so off the grid and you just have to give me points because it's nothing like what's on radio that's when i'm kind of like no i just don't want to listen to this because it sounds it just it just sounds like trash that's amazing and i think that there's some artists that blur that line really well to a certain extent people would say billy eilish is doing that yeah yeah because some people say that she can't sing actually i think that i'm gonna defend her on that and i, I think that she has oh well billy's one of the few hold the thought but billy is one of the few of the gen zers that i'm not always with what she does but i would rather have billy eilish's than mgk's because yeah billy is not just trying to She's not a throwback artist. That is no. She's that very, is the best thing about Billie Eilish. She's very in the now, hands down. Very in the now. Even when she misses, and yeah. she does. Oh yes, okay? she misses. She oh, misses. Yes. But even when she misses, the great thing about Billie is like all her throwaway stuff. There's always gonna be that artist that's gonna listen to it and then do something super cool in the future. It's very inspirational. Yeah, of course. I could see it being a thing where like some of her throwaways, some artists might take and do their spin with it, and it could hits for them. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, from a songwriting standpoint, there's a reason why her and Phineas are award darlings at this point is because the basic bones of the song is actually really good. And then you're throwing on these very in the now, but also thinking more ahead in the future with some of this production things. And I think that is the thing I give them a lot of respect for, huh. even even if I'm not the biggest fan of something that you they do. You think she's pulling a little bit of a Bjork here? Yeah, yes. She's doing a lot of far left stuff. Yes. Or what, left field is the word? Yeah, le- avant-garde, you could say. Yeah, and she reminds me of Bjork in that way. She's pretty big, but she throws even her fans for a loop, dude. She oh, just yeah. does something like, wait, we weren't expecting this, and that's kind of her point. Right, but I but I have to give... That part about her I like. Yeah, I have to give a lot of respect for that, just because it's the complete antithesis of what we've stated so many times on this already, of people who are just recycling to existing ideas, and meanwhile, she's actually somebody who is actually trying some different ideas, and even if not all of them are going to be direct hits, like, you know, at least you have to give the credit for her trying and going out and doing something different. Unlike the killers who have been stuck in the 80s for like the last Ugh, decade. They used to sound so good, man. In like a super cool, edgy way. Right. Did you ever listen to Sawdust? Uh, off Samstown? No. So it was, it was after it was Samstown. Sam's even though good. Hot Fuss is my favorite killers record. Go figure, right? But it's, it's good, though. It's good. It's and the mainstream pick for sure. It is a mainstream pick, but it's good. The Samstown era is the best era, in my opinion, sonically. Now, Hot Fuss is a better mixed album, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. It's much better No mixed. question. But the edginess, that edgy... To me, that was modern rock back in 2006. Yeah. 2005, 2007. That era of the Killers is sonically the best. Mm. Because that's when they were experimenting with different stuff. It's kind of a shame that no one knows about Sawdust. So Sawdust is not a studio record. It's like an in-between, you know, it's like B-side. Almost like an EP kind of thing. Yeah, but it has the same sonic quality as Samstown. Oh, that's what I was thinking. I was yeah. thinking that it was, it was the Samstown era, but it wasn't like an actual record. Right. right. Well, I forgot. This I can't remember the this producer from Flood. I actually, it's embarrassing. I don't even know who he is. But right. um, the guy who mixed that also mixed at least some of the tracks from Sawdust. And there are a lot of songs where the killers were really trying different things and really kind of veering away from their um, throwback influences, mm-hmm. doing something that felt modern. Right. 
In fact, kind of like the way that Foles innovated, it felt like killers were innovating in 2006 and 2007. Yeah. And then, of course, and that was such a good time. And then, of course, and it was um, so short lived. And then in 2008 and beyond, they've been like this. It's, well, day and age, this this, this throwback <laughs> new wave outlet, which new wave is allowed to evolve in the current now, because there are some bands that I love that are new wave now. Sure. But it totally sounds like the aughts in the 2010s and 2020. Like it sounds like the present day. Yeah. But the problem is the killers kind of did that, but then they ended up just totally throwing back, mimicking these 80s ballads. Oh, they had a song with Bruce Springsteen on it. Yeah, well, they did a re they redid uh um Dustland Fairy Tale, which is from Day and Age, so that's from 2008. Yeah. And it was kind of cool to listen to it. Yeah, but they no, no, they didn't a song, they did an actual collaboration with Bruce Springsteen. And somebody put it really well when they said it sounds like Springsteen with a Springsteen impersonator on the track. And that's what it sounds like because yeah. because Brandon has basically been impersonating Springsteen for like the last decade. He didn't need to do it so aggressively. He could have done it in a, a really tactful way where he could have done, you know. Well, one of the last albums I enjoyed from them was now some people are going to have. No, 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 no. Let's let this is good. They're my top 10. Yeah, I like some stuff off of Battleborn. I like. A couple songs. I like some of the stuff. I like some of the stuff off Battleborn. There's like Miss Atomic Bomb and and Runaways and all that. Yeah. I I, I kind of liked some of that. Like that was okay. But then the, this recent one that they put out, like Beyond the Mirage, I feel like they're, they're running on the coattails of like the ballady elements of Samstown. Yeah, and I didn't like that. Right, but then of course, like, but you're allowed to like what you like. So, but of course, with the whole like storytelling and like plaininess, that's where the Springsteen Heartland thing comes in. Sure, a little bit. But that last album, that Beyond the Mirage or whatever, where they were trying to be like Fleetwood Mac, and you want to talk about a mix? Ooh, ouch! Uh, the mixing and mastering on that one, no bueno. No, no good. No, no bueno, sir. Which sucks because actually, Caution wasn't a bad track. Caution actually had some good lyrics structurally it wasn't any- oh no that was crossfire that's when he went solo because yeah. he did flamingo and then he did crossfire was that 2013 well 15? yeah and then there was the desire to we are talking about caution by killers caution by the killers. yeah i remember that song yeah and then there's the desired effect which is the other brandon flowers yep. solo outing dude they remind me of what's that ben they remind me <laughs> you know it's funny <laughs> the killers turn into kind of what reminds me of paramore and panic it just turned into like a solo project of the lead guys pretty much i'm sorry it's oh, like yeah it doesn't sound like a band anymore it, no it's brandon flowers and and i don't think that it's helped the band it's brandon flowers and all these other musicians it's brendan yuri and all these other musicians it's adam levine and all these other musicians like which say it again what and it's no no i agree with you oh yeah yeah say it again for those people who didn't hear you because i agree well yeah it's those bands especially in the 2000s it is the front man and then a bunch of i don't want to say session musicians but basically but it's not even good i'm not really big on what panic has done but compared to what the other bands have done like killers and paramore panic at least tried. i think panic even though it sounds like a brendan yuri solo project it sounded relatively better yeah. Than what the other bands became. Right. Because it still felt like Brendan was trying some different stuff and I didn't like it. Yeah. But I can totally get why people like it. And I'm glad that he's trying different things with. Yeah. With Haley and Brandon Flowers. They're literally just like, oh, new wave. Yeah. Let's just like copy all the stuff that we heard. <laughs> it's like they listen to one that. What was that one? Uh, I totally forgot that one Talking Heads album that everyone talks about. Uh, it's not it's not Remain in Light. It's the one after it. Right. Is it Remain in Light, the one with like the kaleidoscope kind of look? The oh, yellow? no, no, that's the one after it. It's, it's Remain in Light's from 1980 with all the, yeah, four the faces. faces. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, the other one is, I know what album you're well, talking about. Well, basically, it feels like all these like alternative rock bands from the aughts are like trying to copy that. And I'm like, stop. That's the Talking Heads album that has This Must Be the Place. Oh, and it's the bring, worst. It's one of the worst trends in rock. Being, bringing down the house. To me, it's shameful. It is. But Brendan Yuri, I have to give him credit for like at least trying to be yes, modern, at least, at least trying different. something different. Some of those tracks that he did, he had a track that sounded like a Sinatra, but modern, which was a little interesting. Then, of course, he went on Broadway for a little while. I don't vibe with Brendan because I'm just not big on that style, but 
like you said, the idea of doing something different and not just trying to copy like Michael Jackson, all these people and really be himself. Yeah. It's really respectable because he could have very likable. Yeah. He could have very easily copied Queen if he wanted to. I and, know. Fre- and Freddie like Mercury. Like what Brandon Flowers does. Yeah. He could have. Yeah. Brennan Yuri <laughs> could have very easily copied Freddie Mercury and just called it a day. Oh. But he didn't. I'm glad that he didn't do that mm-hmm. because honestly, some of the Freddie solo stuff. Eh. Brandon, Brandon and Haley are. Brandon's not really in there, but he would be in my top 10. But Brandon and Haley. Well, yeah, but I feel like it's because of the stuff they did earlier, which like you can't discredit the stuff they no, did earlier. It was amazing. And they kind of like cemented a spot. There's a lot of artists like that where I feel like they did so many good things early on in their mm-hmm. career. And in a lot of cases, it's either. Um, oh, Matt Bellamy, one of the greatest frontmen of a generation, in my opinion. Oh, I, yeah. easily, easily. Now, some people say that Matt Bellamy tries to copy Queen too much, which he, they do. They, 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 do, they, they do copy some Queen. Right. They, they do copy do some that. Queen. Yeah, it definitely. Uh, what was it from 2009? That one with the colors. Is it Uprising? It's Uprising's on it. Uh, bro, yeah, no, I know which one. You're talking That's the name of the album. Is it Uprising? No, it's no. What is it? What's that's the name not of it? the album. That's not the album. It was uh, the title is. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Oh, <laughs> but no, I totally forgot. But even some stuff on one of their albums, which was like the second law, I think, was one of their albums, um, which had um, that survival song, the mm-hmm. which was used for the Olympics, which sounded like a Queen joint. There actually was a song off the second law that I really like, which is called Panic Station. Um, which sounds very Red Hot Chili Peppers-ish. True. It sounds like Muse listened to some Red Hot Chili Peppers and even a little Stevie at times with like the superstition kind of lines in there Mm -hmm. and tried their take at it. And I thought that actually that was kind of a bit refreshing to hear them do something funk. That was a little bit interesting because, you know, for them, they're known as kind of like a hard, like one of the last like kind of harder rock bands. Because I remember like, what is it, the... Symmetry album, the first one that they came out with, which just got remastered. Mm-hmm. And then like the album with a oh Black Holes and Revelations. That's the one. The album with Knights of Sidonia on it, which is a fantastic track. That's a really good song, yeah. Yeah, Knights of Sidonia is great. Progressive rock feel to it. Is that the one with X what was the name? Da, 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 yes. Da, 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 da. Yeah. I totally forgot the name of that. I used to listen to that album all the time. Yeah, no, Black Holes and Revelations is great. It has, you know, Starlight. Or was that from Supermassive Black Hole? Supermassive Black Hole is on Black Holes and Revelations. Oh my gosh! Wow, I used to know that, my I used to know my muse that's, very that's, well. That's on that's on that album. That's okay. that's why I think Black Holes. Well, and Revelations. regardless of all that, I absolutely love the one that came out in two thousand one. Yeah, that's the, the orange one, the very first one. This yeah, symmet- like Axis of Symmetry or no, whatever. No, no, the first one is from nineteen ninety nine, and that's the one with uh, wow, dude, I used to remember all these albums so well. <laughs> I'm like drawing blanks here, but I know it's blue and it's got that woman on the moon. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, that one's from 99. Oh, is it? No, absolutely. Nope. It's from 2004. But the one with the, is it Origin of Symmetry? Origin of Symmetry, that's there it. There we go. I'm telling Origin you, it's symmetry. coming, it's coming. Right. No, that one's a second, that's her sophomore release. Yeah, that's the one that just got remastered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That one is so good. Yeah, plug in, baby. Yeah, yeah exactly. that one's good. And it channeled the best parts of Nirvana yeah. in a very, oh, yeah. very non-cheesy way. It, they just oh, oh, did so well with that record. Oh, yeah, definitely. But I mean, I think that once again, there's kind of a thing where it's recycled, recycled, recycled and whatnot. And I think more and more people are starting to shake that a little bit more. I mean, I think there's some instances where people are directly comparing Billboard hit songs to songs that have come out in like very, very recently. But artists who did stuff really well uh-huh. earlier in their careers that was so good that they basically had an all access pass living rent free in <laughs> the greatest of all times list and there's a lot of artists that did that that's um, pretty good i like that no that's what it is a perfect example of that is lauren hill in the hip-hop r&b side of things lauren hill did that because she had the record with the fugees the mm-hmm. score which is arguably considered one of the best hip-hop and reggae albums of all time with Wyclef Jean and all that. And then her solo album, Miseducation, huge, in the blend of hip-hop, R&B, soul. And then after that, pretty much nothing. But because that early work was so solid, like she gets a pass in everybody's top lists. And I'm like, I can't. Because to me, it's like you get the pass into the top list if you're consistently good. This of is course. true. Instead of just like, nope, I'm not going to get any bad reviews. So I'm not going to put out any music because I already right. got one really good one. 
Yeah, like putting your eggs in one basket or like putting everything in one album and then just not doing anything else afterwards. Ah, like that gotcha. that's the thing. Here's the thing. I would prefer somebody to have some great things at the start and then to actually take as much time as they need to put out something else that's above the same quality. A great comparison to that is D'Angelo, who literally took like 13 years to put out an album between when he did Voodoo in 2000, which is a classic by, I would say, many standards, especially in the neo-soul R&B kind of thing. If you haven't listened to that front to back, you probably should just because many of the neo-soul music that you're familiar with now borrowed heavily from Voodoo. But he waited 13 years, but then put out a really good album and the quality was still there. Same thing with Kendrick. Kendrick takes a long, long time between projects, but the man's discography within his genre is pretty much almost flawless at this point. I would rather prefer that than people trying to rush out an album that's less than or in the case of Lauren Hill, oh, I'm going to put out this really great album and then not do anything else after that. Now, I know some of that comes down to studio politics. Some of that's a little bit of like, you know, oh, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't let me release it. I had this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, There's these, a lot of I that. had these tracks, but it got stuck in development hell or whatever, which. But I, you're basically saying if that were not the case, that's the point you're arguing from. Correct. But even with the studio politics, you'd say it's just unfortunate that it doesn't necessarily mean that you're the greatest, even despite the politics. Because right. politics or not, the proof is that you just don't have this discography. Right, exactly. You don't have the body of work to justify, you know. The title. Uh, yeah, right. We talk about, you know, Bob Marley. That's why Bob Marley is like oh, the. Dude, he is. You want to talk about discography? Prolific, man. He had so much stuff out. Yeah, exactly. There's a reason why he is, um, I always talk about him, but it's because the band are so... He was one of the few people, I feel like, who actually got quality and quantity. He gave you a fair amount of music, but it was also quality. That's the thing. I feel like so many artists, it'll be one or the other. Like, they'll give you quality, and then it'll just be about quantity, and then the quality will drop. Or it's all quality, and then the actual amount of output is going to drop. He's one of those few artists. And I know, like, it's yeah. easy to pick out because, you know, they talk about him being the king of reggae. While I don't disagree with that title, I think his quality was so good, he transcends the reggae. Oh, yeah. I think he truly is one of the greatest artists of all time. And a lot has to do with the consistency. And from album to album, it's a consistent record. Yeah. And here's the thing, too. The funny thing was, is that, you know, he wasn't known as a reggae artist in the beginning. He was a folk artist. He did folk music. He did basically music for working class people in Jamaica and then got into the reggae thing. They did start as a parody band a little bit like they, really? they, they used to take a lot of that American like doo-wop sound. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, in the 60s, you know, they recorded with a different backing band than what the Whalers really got built on before the Barrett Brothers joined for the bass and the drums. Yeah. And it doesn't sound super, super original, but 1965, 1964, I think it was 65 when they released their first record. Mm -hmm. It's actually covers, really. Yeah. Most of it is covers. And that's how they started. And then by the turn of the 70s, you know, in 70, they released an album. <laughs> they hated the album cover. It's, you know, yeah, there's some stuff on that, but they didn't even like that cover and they didn't. Right. They didn't agree to it, but um, that was like the beginning of the modern day wheelers that we'd become to know. And then by 73, they released Catch a Fire as well as Burning. Yeah. And, you know, that had Stir It Up and then it also had Get Up Stand Up, my favorite song of all time. Yeah. It started such a great career and it sucks because Peter started the band but ended up leaving. Right. Peter Tosh. Yeah. He's the one that started it, supposedly. Right. Well, I mean, Peter Tosh went on to still make great reggae music. But, after but that road was paved by the trio. Right. Bob was a pop star. Peter was the rebel. And kind of to me, he was the rock star. Yeah. Bob was like a pop star, but Peter was the rock star. And yeah. then Bunny's just a great poet. Right. You know, and great singer. He was the most technical of the two. Yeah. Of the three. Yeah. But bottom line, it was such a solid name from the beginning when Bob basically inherited the name and just took it on. I mean, yeah, Bob had that pop aesthetic to him. But that name was paved from the beginning with the original trio. And it was that solid from the beginning that he could kind of do no wrong. But even when you listen to it, even if you don't like reggae, if you listen to it, there's a consistency that's really rare in even a lot of 70s artists. Yeah. And there's a reason why he's there. And I just feel like a lot of people, they just want to listen to Legend and they don't really want to experience, they don't want to experience Survival or Kaya, yeah. Natty Dread, mm -hmm. or Rastaman Vibration. I mean, those are sick albums. And the consistencies. 
I would say Exodus is really good too. Exodus is everyone's favorite. Probably ironically, my least favorite, my second least favorite. But it's it's very good. It's like his Nevermind. There's yes. a reason why that album is so popular with people. Mm-hmm. And even though it's not my favorite, it is absolutely his most consistent record. Yeah, definitely. Come to think of it, you know, it's so weird that so many of legendary careers. No pun intended. Uh, were, <laughs> so many of the legendary careers of these are like basically groundbreaking artists, especially in the 60s, were started off of covers and putting out albums of cover material. But they didn't stay there. That's the beauty of it. Right. Beatles and the Whalers do the same thing. Right. But what I'm saying is try doing that now. Try putting out a covers album now to make your ground and see how far that gets you. Exactly. I just hate I just, when artists like just stay there. I, I just don't I just don't think that you would do yeah, there's there's a lot of artists, um mm-hmm. a lot of artists on YouTube actually who make original music but still kind of focus their channel a little bit too much in the pre-existing realm. Yes. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest inhibitors of why they maybe don't have the same appeal or platform as a lot of other ones. I mean, some of it comes down to marketing too. But there's a great artist on YouTube for anybody who's interested in some good R&B. There's Stan Taylor is a really good example of that, where man's voice, really solid. I mean, really good voice. The covers that he does of the songs, he has like a classic series, I think, that he does. Mm -hmm. Really good covers. But I think he got a little bit too far down in there to where when he put out original music, it didn't quite chart and get the, the, uh, the type of attention that maybe it's meant his maybe name he, as a as more of a cover act, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that sucks. That's the thing. You can't get yourself in the position where you're going to be like a nostalgia act because as soon as you get in the position where you're going to be a nostalgia act, like sure, you can make money off of the fact that there's people who are going to pay to see you when you go Covers on. Covers give you the most upfront money, yes. but it's only upfront. Yes. If you really want to make good back end money, you gotta write. You gotta, you gotta, really gotta write on your originals. Yeah. You gotta and you gotta write. That's yeah. what you gotta do, because that's pretty much where a lot of it is, is. Is within the songwriting. It is case by case. So whatever. Some of you guys are different. We get it, but it's not the norm. That is exceptional if you're doing the exact opposite of what we just said. Yeah, which there have been some. I mean, I think what is important. I think in the internet age of things, I think there's nothing wrong with doing covers. As a matter of fact, it's something that I do. I like um, covers too. But there's nothing wrong with that. What I do think is, though, is that the covers are a really good way to kind of build an audience. Covers are your training wheels, meaning you yeah. shouldn't ride your bike the rest of your life with training wheels. You should yeah. use them when you need them. Yeah. If you do a really good cover, it can get yeah. it can get you that exposure of people listening that might not have been there before because it's something that's familiar to them. It's not something that they have to really be like, you know, is this actually going to be accessible for me? Like, it's something that they already know that like, it's a brand name, you know, it's like remaking a movie. It's a brand name. So there's going to be a lot of just genuine attention and and curiosity that's going to drive it. But I think the people who really can do well are people who will start on covers and then we'll springboard into original stuff that maybe you can connect the dots in terms of influence, right. but that isn't, you know, it's not like, you know, throwaways of whatever <laughs> they were inspired by either. It's kind of their own thing. So I think that's kind of the... We're going to revisit this one because it's such a huge topic. It, yeah, we, it deserves that's way a, more days. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but um, yeah, but, and the thing is with, back to the Marley thing, you know, some of the early records maybe didn't sound so hot, but then their '60s stuff is pretty floppy. But you know what? They put in their hours, and well, yeah, because the instrumentation like sounds really good. You can hear a lot of jamming in the early Wheelers days, and yeah. by the '70s, they were a bona fide, just class act. Yeah, but and the quality did. It's go, so the, good. The quality did go up too. That's like, maybe, considerably. Maybe that's why I think I really like you know something like Exodus because it does sound really good. From seventy three all the way to eighty one, he released like what like eight records, eight or nine. Yeah, it's a lot. And to a certain extent, you depending on the subjectivity, you can view them all as classic in one respect or another. Yeah, depending on what your view of Marley is. And and the Sonics, the contrast in Sonics between album are it's pretty amazing. Well, because he he incorporated some dub work into his. Oh yeah, no, no, but but I think the producers he was working with with each record, like yeah, there's a good difference between each. Yeah, Kaya has a lot of reverb. It's drenched in reverb. It's very spacey, and it gets you in that ethereal mindset. Right. But then Exodus sounds like a well polished album. It sounds like it's trying to be commercial. 
It's um, probably the most. Com- yeah, it, it is the most it, commercial. It probably is the most. It's commercial not too much. Record. It's not too much delay. Not too much reverb. But yeah, you know, you can hear the multi tracks, the yeah. overdubs in it. I mean, I love a uh, Catch a Fire because it's more earthy. Yeah, but there's also a Jamaican version and a UK version. Yeah, so there's something a little bit for everybody there. Yeah. So no, but I think like I said, with just tying it back into how we got started with this in terms of the Sonics, the Sonics is going to help a great album. It's like the same thing with album covers. A great album cover will boost a great album. A great album cover will not really help a bad album. And a bad cover doesn't necessarily mean that the album is bad. It's kind of the same thing with the way that music is engineered as well which is great engineering is going to complement great music. Great engineering and mediocre music. The music is still right. going to be mediocre. Uh, mediocre. Bad music <laughs> Bad music and bad engineering is just a combination that you really don't want unless you're trying to go for that intentional lo-fi discombobulated sound, unless you're trying to be like death grips. That's a topic for a whole new day, and that would actually be really rad. What's that? The, uh, the artist? No, no, that, no, but getting into like the intentional, uh, hey, I'm going to make it sound a little lo-fi or I'm going to yeah, intentionally make it sound oh, off a little bit. Yeah, intentionally. Because making sometimes the, uh, that actually works and sometimes people take it way too seriously. Yeah, but that's definitely one for a, yeah. an, another day. But I think that that's kind of what it is. Actually, in, in terms of New Music Friday, one of the artists that dropped the album recently, and I listened to it on the way over, was, was mm-hmm. that John Mayer record. What is it called? Rock what? Sob Rock. Sob Rock. There you go. I almost called it Snob Rock or Rock Snob. I almost called it that. Well, some people do feel that John Mayer is a bit I, snobbish. I am so a I mean, rock snob, but I'm a I'm a very easygoing snob. Yeah, but I mean, some people some people would view John Mayer as a snob in a way. Oh so gosh. I mean, it wouldn't be too far off. They should name it Snob Rock. But, That's but hilarious. I, but I listened to the Sob Rock record, and okay. the engineering is fantastic. Naturally, uh, songwriting is. Uh, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it because, and don't get me wrong, I am the John Mayer. I knew it. Endorser. I I've yeah, been endorsing. But it doesn't mean you're gonna. You know, I've been. The Whalers got lucky with me. I just so happened to like each thing that they did. I had to listen to it a little bit. Yeah. I had to scrutinize it, but it worked. But with like a band like Foo Fighters, also one of my favorites, they've had some misses, man. Yeah. So it was really well engineered. It captured the whole. He was going for definitely a, a certain period of the '80s, which he got to a T. It feels like a concept album when I throw back. Right. It doesn't feel like a. Well, it was described. You know? It was described as basically like so. Basically, he came up during the early 2000s and got you know known as being kind of like the, the neon guy. <laughs> which neon is a fantastic. Song. Oh, neon's amazing. Fantastic song. But he got known for playing that environment: coffee houses, frat houses, whatever you want to call it. He was basically like the guy with a guitar. I think John Mayer and Jack Johnson, while they are very different, they are singer-songwriter kings of the yachts. Oh, definitely. Because you couldn't go many places without hearing one right? of their tracks. Like you'd be going to dinner somewhere, and you might hear both of them back to back. I got one for electric guitar, one for acoustic yeah, guitar. You might, yeah, you might hear banana pancakes right. followed up by daughters, which is like, okay. John's more like a virtuoso, but Jack's just a really good songwriter. He is, and he's very laid back about it, which I give him a lot of respect for. He's not coming out saying, like, I am this great songwriter. He kind of lets the music speak for himself. It's very easygoing. It's probably because dude's from Hawaii, so he's probably pretty chill. He probably makes music that's like, hey, you're on the islands, and you're just chilling. It's easy to listen to. It's good. He hasn't, like, pushed the envelope by any means, but he found his lane, and he really capitalized in his lane. And same, same thing with John Mayer. The next one we should talk about is quality control. Quality, what do you mean? Consistency. Oh, yeah. We should talk about quality control. We yeah, should do that. Definitely. We'll, so we'll have to start with the Whalers next time because I think they're one of the best bands of definitely. quality control. At least when they got really serious about releasing major ones because 60s, I don't really think counts. Right. And this could definitely be like a little trilogy series that we're doing because we talk now about engineered records and how a well-engineered record is going to do. Now we talk about quality control in terms of music, mm-hmm. followed by those that just went completely in the opposite direction and made something that was avant-garde or a little bit out there to varying levels of success. So that is what you should expect on the Work Tape podcast within these next few episodes. Once again, I'm Mitchell Palmer, Isaac Grover, Work Tape podcast. Uh, you know where to be for the great gems, music advice, and everything else under the sun pretty much in relation to music. 
There's only one answer. It's the Work Tape Podcast. So yeah, dude. So keep a lookout. Probably within the next week or two, we'll be releasing this podcast. So we need to get as many reviews as possible. Absolutely. Uh, spread the word. Yeah, spread the word. You know, like and subscribe. Right. That's kind of weird. It's very YouTube like. So please follow. And yep, you can follow this guy here. Yep, Mitchell Palmsky, Mitchell underscore Palmsky on TikTok and Instagram. He had an album release. As a matter of fact, yes, yeah. I do. A uh, shameless plug at the very end of the podcast. No, no, here. no, not shameless at all. This is your platform. So here it is. Uh, Mysterious Wonders came out last week. Um, it's an album that I'm very proud of, very much in the R&B, alternative, pop, uh, a little bit of a cocktail of those genres. It sounds like the past, but it's not derivative. I'm just going to say it's that. It's good. Thank you. If I were to rate your stuff, the lowest I'd give it is a three out of five. Oh, that's great. That's not bad. That's fantastic. That's like good, but you know, there's room for improvement it, there. Yeah. And I, and I, I never, and I actually, evolution. I purposely don't typically rate too high because that just rules out future stuff. You know, it's where? very rare. Someone's like a five out of five on their first album. Oh no. Typically they're five, five for their first album. They don't really have anything after that. that. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to like start from the top and slope down. You no, want to start from a decently low level and go up. Yeah. So you, Keep I think building. you're on that path. Keep building. Thank you, man. Yeah. But um, the thing is, is there's influences worn on the sleeve, but definitely not derivative and, and definitely not recycled. A lot of it's, I think, really good. So go check out Mysterious Wonders. It's available literally everywhere. So even on platforms that people hardly use to listen to music, like Tidal, Pandora, mm-hmm. Rhapsody, whatever you want to. <laughs> I thought you say pandemic. I'm so used to hearing that word, man. <laughs> It was made during the pandemic. Pandemic's box. I like that. That that actually sounds. That's got a ring to it. That's that's an album. That's an album in itself. That's a freaking con. That's that's my next concept album, everybody. So it's Mitchell Palmer is yours. Follow Irie as well. That's I R I E. But uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead and check that out. Mysterious Wonders is available on everywhere where you're streaming music. Of course, it's on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, the big players where people are actually going to go. Whether or not some physical CDs will come out, I'm still kind of deciding that right now, but. Go stream it. Go show it some love. Like I said, my original music's out. I think he's got some original music coming as well. So just stay tuned for all those updates. So much peace and love, y'all. Thank you guys for tuning in. Tune in next week. Much peace and love, y'all.